Last week, we discussed the secrets to finding and attracting your organization's dream partners. This week, we talk with an expert in employee retention about why cohesion matters in our organizations and how we get it. After over a decade of nonprofit leadership impacting thousands, we hit a wall. We started asking ourselves, how can we go beyond personal success and leave a legacy that lasts far beyond our lifetimes? A job change and a couple pivots in the for-profit leadership later? We're on the search to get that question answered. If you're a leader who cares deeply about supporting nonprofits from the inside or from the outside, this podcast is for you. We believe that the world needs what you are going to leave behind, and it's our passion to help you find that thing and build it. I'm Ted. And I'm Lisa. Welcome to the Legacy Builders Movement. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so thrilled today. We have Dr. Troy Hall with us. Uh, He's a global expert in talent retention strategies and talks a lot about building a cohesive culture, which we are super excited to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. He's been featured on the Today Show on ABC. He's written a couple books. Dr. Troy, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you share a couple things that maybe aren't on your bio that our listeners might find interesting? Okay, well, I'd be happy to do that. And I just wanted to say I am so excited to be with uh, Ted and Lisa today. So Thank it's uh, really good. And so a couple things that aren't on my bio or my resume. So the first thing is I had the opportunity to kiss the Blarney Stone in Cork Castle in Ireland. Whoa, that's cool. And so it, this was pre-pandemic. And so uh, we were on a trip. And as we're going up the stairway, because they've had to reinforce the stairs, the castle is crumbling and falling apart. Most of it's not there. The roof's missing. But the way that is for the Blarney Stone is you have to kiss it upside down. If you're going to get anything, you have to kiss it upside down. So they build this railing system so that you can lean back, you can kiss it upside down. And again, you know, two to three million lips are on this thing right before the (laughs) pandemic and nobody cares. Today you sneeze and everyone's in a panic. So So we lean back, we kiss the stone. But I tell my wife beforehand, I go, honey, I said, do you think that by kissing the stone that I'm going to lose all of my schmooze and all of the blarney that I may already have? (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, a couple of days later, as we're continuing on our trip and I'm talking to some other people and just sort of, you know, interacting with the locals and so forth, she leans over at me and she says, remember when you asked about the blarney stone? I said, yes. She says, oh, don't worry, your rhetoric is still intact. (laughs) (laughs) So it was that. Um, So I've also had the opportunity to uh, ride a camel in the Middle East, an elephant in Asia, and a hot air balloon in Africa. I was chased by an albino peacock in France, and I have the pictures to prove it. (laughs) And uh, I I also had an opportunity to do a... um, to do some shopping on a uh, water taxi. It's a water boat uh, in Thailand. Cool. And then I guess the last thing I'd share with you is uh, I've traveled to 45 U.S. states. I've been in 60 plus countries and set foot on six continents. Wow, that's that's quite an accomplishment. That's uh, that's something that we would like to do at some point too. Is just get all around and experience everything the world has to offer. This is a big and place. you know, we just start. We just started. Our wife, my wife, and I. We just started early. Just don't wait. So don't mm-hmm. hold back. So one of the things that I will talk about, and that you'll find in in, in my books and my teachings, is that uh, the truth is in the I am, not the someday I will be. Mm-hmm. So it's not someday I will have an opportunity to travel. I am traveling now, and you put it in the present tense, and you bring power to what you want to do today and now. So you claim it, and just. Start those adventures, and before you know it, you'll rack up the countries, you'll rack up the experiences, and 
Um, and you just would never have thought that it was possible until you actually put a plan together and you speak life to it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into doing what you're doing and how you're helping organizations all over the world. Well, thank you. I've always been a teacher at heart. I think that's been the case or in this or a mentor. Uh, and I've always felt that that was really a great thing. So I had an opportunity in my uh, current uh, role uh, to develop a consulting and a executive coaching business. And that just seemed perfect because I could kind of give the information that I've acquired over 40 some years of work and I could really make a difference. And when it comes to a culture inside an organization, the culture is made up of your rituals, your norms, traditions, standards, those types of things. And they're different for every company. Mm -hmm. But what makes it work after you have established the HR principles, practices and strategies is leadership. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is I've always been developing and working with leaders. I've done, um, you know, mentoring programs uh, for a, a local industry uh, in North and South Carolina. I created uh, together with another individual, a mentoring program that uh, is was put in place. He and I started the program today. Over thousands of people have been involved in this mentoring program. I also um, got some recognition from the South Carolina State House I got a resolution for creating a global exchange program. First time we created a global exchange program, we brought leaders from another country to South Carolina, mentored, worked with them, uh, gave them that, that experience. So for me, it's always been that leadership activity and that's what really drives your culture. And my, mm -hmm. background, my background, I have a PhD in global leadership and entrepreneurship. So my dissertation focused around uh, group dynamics with an emphasis on cohesion. And so it was perfect to then say, wow, I can now take all this information and I can package it in a way that people, whether you're in a for-profit or a not-for-profit or a non-profit, can actually take that strategic framework and apply it to their organization. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you talk about building cohesion within a culture, um, we understand that leadership drives the culture, but sometimes people forget about that factor, like the cohesion of it. Um, where do you start with an organization or what questions do you start asking of the leaders so that you can get a feel for where they're actually at? Well, there's a couple of things. So, But first, I want to make sure that all of our listeners understand what a cohesion culture is, because mm -hmm. I think that will help. And then mm -hmm. I can give you some, some more information. So a, co a cohesion culture is a safe work environment where people have a sense of belonging, are valued, and share in mutual commitments. So when you have those three elements, those three strategic elements in your organization, you will you'll be able to experience cohesion. Mm -hmm. And so... When I work with an organization, the first thing I do is uh, I make sure that the CEO is 100% on board with what they're attempting to do in the organization. Mm -hmm. If not, and I'm just very polite, uh, I try to help a little bit, but I'm not really going to extend much because the CEO and the senior leadership team can totally dismantle anything that you put in place. It right. doesn't matter. You can have the best <laughs> HR strategies and, and all of the the best handbooks and all kinds of great information, great pay and everything. But if the senior leadership within the organization doesn't support it, then it falls apart. And what you don't want is you don't want things coming from the bottom up because that's an uprising, right? You want it to be able to come in all directions, but it needs to start from the top down. So once I understand that that's in place, I can then offer an organization a cultural assessment um, program where they actually can assess the culture of where they are today. 
And then once they receive that assessment, then what we do is we take the strategic framework of belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment, and we actually lay it over top of the organization to see what do they have in place already. See, it's not about reinventing the wheel. It's not about creating a bunch of new things like, oh my gosh, this is going to be horrible. I got to redo everything. No, it's about organizing it so that you can see where your gaps and your holes are. Mm -hmm. So you may not be doing enough in the area of belonging. You may not be paying enough attention to value or to shared mutual commitments. For the most part, I ask then organizational leaders for the next two weeks or a month, depending upon what they prefer to do and what their schedules are like, to go back and observe. Observe greetings. How are people interacting with each other? Do they say hi when they come in in the morning? Do they just walk in and go to their terminal and sit down and have no interaction? How do they greet each other when they come into meetings? How is it like in the hallway? What's happening? Is it just greetings or do they extend to something personal? Are they creating any kind of a relationship sort of activity? Are all of the conversations all about business and nothing about personal? So there's a balance that you wanna look for. And so I ask them to listen because once you start heightening your awareness, you become really in tune with what's happening. Mm. Then I ask them to say, listen for laughter. Now we've had a couple of laughs already. We had some laughs in the pre-show. Yep. I wish we have to make sure we bring those laughs in because <laughs> laughter is not only a stress relief, but it's also a good indicator that things are happening well in the organization because people are getting along. Because it's not laughing at, it's laughing with. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the opportunity is, is that sound of laughter there. And then the last thing is to look for what we call agreements. Now, in, in the pre-pandemic, I would have said, look for handshakes, um, fist bumps, high fives. Of course, I'm being very conscientious today of social distancing. So I say, just look for what those agreements are because people will have that interaction in such a way. And the, but the physical touch is so important to us as human beings that they're still going to be like, I think they've come up with chicken wing, you know, as an opportunity to greet. And sometimes people will still do the fist bumps, you know, and, or they'll do an air high five. And why you want to look for those agreements is because for the greetings, laughter and those agreements, you're actually figuring out belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment, and you're doing it from what we call an empirical viewpoint. Right. So you're mm-hmm. observing it. And social learning occurs when you observe, and then you get that information that you are able to see. So that's kind of how that begins with an organization, and then I take them on whatever journey they need to go on, depending upon um, you know what they wanna do. And for the most part, I'm there to advise them. I'm not doing the work for them, they're actually doing their own work. It's their culture. It's not my culture. And uh, absolutely. But, yeah. And I have one more thing for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, oh, go, for, go it. for it. Okay, good. So I'm going to have you play for this because sometimes people get a misconception when I talk about the cohesion culture. They think, oh, you're just trying to make me like every other organization. I won't have my uniqueness. Where's my identity? Where's my co- where traditions? Hmm. So I, I thought, okay, I have to come up with a way to help people get this across. So I come up with chocolate cake. Okay. So, Ted, I'm going to ask you. Okay. Ted, have you had a piece of chocolate cake? Yes. At some point in my life, I have. (laughs) Okay. Lisa, has Ted had more than one piece of chocolate cake in his life? Yes. (laughs) Ted, I won't ask you if you've had them at the same sitting. Okay? So, I promise that. (laughs) So, now I want to know is, did did the chocolate cakes taste identical? Definitely not. Were you able to recognize that it was a chocolate cake when you ate it, even though it came from different bakers? Absolutely. Great. So now you can equate chocolate cake and cohesion culture. 
So the CCs, see how that all works? Ah. But, and, here's, and here's why. In chocolate cake, there's three main ingredients besides the cocoa. You have milk, you have eggs, and you have flour. And there's a variety of them that you can choose, different eggs, different milk, different flours for gluten-free. You know, I want egg whites, I want, uh, you know, uh, goat milk, uh, you know, whatever. So, and when you mix that together, it actually creates a different flavor, even though it's recognizable as a chocolate cake. Like you don't deny it's a chocolate cake. So the cohesion culture works exactly the same way, folks. Find your belonging, find your value, find your shared mutual commitment that's right for your organization and put that into your chocolate cake. And then guess what? You get to have your cake and, and cohesion too. too. <laughs> yes, and cohesion too. I love it. Oh, no, that's so fantastic. great. And it's so so important to break things down in a way that's more easily understandable because it can be so easy to use big words to try to describe stuff, but really communication happens when we actually understand each other, right? And so I yes. love that. I love that chocolate cake. It's making me hungry though now. I want some chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's all it's... good. The uh, the thing that I love about like just being able to observe, I think a lot of leaders end up in this weird sort of rat race where they're trying to figure out what's going on in their culture uh, of their organization and they don't really know how to observe, right? So like giving them handles to be able to figure out, hey, this is healthy. You know, it's not necessarily a waste of time in a meeting if someone chuckles and laughs and high fives. Some, you know, sometimes things can get way too strict sometimes and they don't uh, offer an opportunity for people to be people with each other and actually build right. those relationships. Um, we're, hu we're humans, we're humans first. And remember yeah. it's people who get tasks done. It's not tasks, it's people. <laughs> That's true. So that's can, what the that's what the robots and the computers are for. <laughs> I know, really. We can and we can figure out where there's a life for all of us and in, in all of that. But for the most part, it's really about treating people and treating people right. And one of the biggest mistakes that most organizations make, whether it's a, a for-profit or a non-profit, is really this um, this orientation onboarding, and it's around the area of mutual commitment. So the belonging part happens where where people do more than just fit in, right? They feel like it's, a, like it's something special, it's a part of them. And the great news that happens in belonging is that uh, when people belong, they give a piece of their identity hmm. and they give a piece of it. And so that identity becomes a group identity. And so now all of a sudden, when you get together, you sort of act and behave in a certain way. So like in your family, when your family's together, you act and behave and maybe in a different way than you would when you're by yourself. Why? Because you have a group identity that you're living up to. Well, the good news is that when you have the healthy group identity, and by the way, I'm not talking about giving all of your identity, that would be the cult of culture, and <laughs> version here, you know, where your your identity is a part of it, it is healthy that you give it, and what you will, what will accomplish is that you will um, uh, work toward the common goal of the group, because you will uh, assign and agree to it, and the other thing is, you'll fight to keep it, you'll make mm. sure that it, you stand up for it. And so if you don't stand up for it and you've been acting like it, you've just been fitting in. So now all of a sudden you can start to see some distinctions between them. Value isn't just about treating people right, which is very important and about creating trust, which definitely you do. It's also about making sure people's work is meaningful. So when a volunteer is working in a, non, in a nonprofit, are you making the volunteer feel like they're valued? Are you telling them what they're doing matters to the end goal? Not, oh, I'm just raising money. But what does it make a difference to whether you're standing at the um, front of a walk line and you're handing out badges or you're at, at checkpoint number two cheering someone on or you're at the end closing it out if you're doing some kind of a function act 
activity or event, you need to let people know what each of those pieces mean because mm -hmm. then they have value and guess what then they're able to do it not only that but you're teaching them big picture they start to see bigger things happening inside the organization that they hadn't seen before they just were very myopic maybe in their own role that they had so you want to expand that from the silo to the macro <laughs> and that will help them with value and then mutual commitments the biggest mistake that organizations make all the time is they assume that because someone either says yes i want to be a part of it by volunteering or B, they want to get paid because they're, they're going to do it, that they don't have to establish commitment anymore. And they do. Mm -hmm. And the first commitment they have to make is to that person. So what you do is you make sure that that person understands what's in it for them. So if you're an organization and you're paying the employee, tell the employee what their growth and development is. That's extremely important for organizations because 63% of all of your employees are looking for growth, development, and advancement. And if you don't let them know there's a path inside your organization, you're actually forcing them to go somewhere else. Right. And this is not people who think they're entitled. This is because this is what we, this is what the is happening today in the uh, workforce, the characteristics of the workforce. So mm -hmm. you shouldn't be denying that. And then also when you're working with an individual who is volunteering in a nonprofit, then you want to also figure out well, what is that shared mutual commitment that I have for them. Like what? What is next? What? What is? What is something that is that they will not only be able to understand what their job is, but what is the growth and development for them? Mm -hmm. Because if you just simply take volunteers in and you go, well, yeah, good. Mary is very happy cutting out this little, you know, stick figure to post up on the poster, and if <laughs> uh, you know Jimmy is okay with the cars in the park parking lot you may want to expand that opportunity so that they can see that there is other places for them mm -hmm. and they will then be more uh, available to the organization as the organization grows your infrastructure is now growing within it so yeah. hopefully some of that will be helpful to your listeners no absolutely the uh, I, I love this this whole concept people really need to feel needed they need to feel known and they need to feel like they're being developed. And without those things, they're going to go somewhere else where they feel needed or known yeah. or developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes. And the, cohesion culture, okay. and the cohesion culture brings about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. right. And the good news is I've been talking about it for years before it became popular <laughs> in the media. You were on the front cutting edge of it, right? Yeah. I know. I didn't realize I was such a trailblazer until <laughs> until I'm, you know, really thinking about this and everything that I've been doing and talking about is about, you know, really treating people the way they were supposed to be treated. I mean, it's one of the lessons my mom taught me very early in life was, you know, you have to treat people right. She says, it doesn't matter whether they're the janitor, whether they're the um, uh, switchboard operator, because for her, that's that would have been the time, or whether they're the president of the company. She says, you treat each person with respect and dignity. Mm -hmm. She said, "You, you. That's how you should need to be. And if you can remember that, then you don't have to worry about title. Title shouldn't be extra, you know, attention. Title is something we use to distinguish what people do, not something that should define them." Ah, uh, that's so good. I really like what you've talked about all throughout this. You're talking about the smallest little pieces. Explain to someone why they're on the second mile marker of what it might be, yes. or pay attention to the handshakes, pay attention to the laughter, pay attention to how people are just saying hello. Um, I think a lot of times with organizations, when they want 
to make a change. They start focusing on these huge things they have to do when really a lot of times it's just about getting super conscientious of the really small details and the really small interactions that are happening because culture often isn't made in the huge moments. Culture is made day to day and moment to moment where people are interacting with each other. Um, Absolutely. And if you're not noticing those little things, it that's where things start to break down and fall apart and you don't notice it until it's until there's a real issue happening. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then, you, then you're trying to put out fires and then you just get in this weird cycle of trying to just keep things from falling apart rather than being able to actually build them up from the inside in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You become reactionary to what it is. So mm-hmm. if you want to have healthy development in any organization, you take care of what is the preliminary needs, our safety and security and protection. You get that because if you want to self-actualize, you can't self-actualize until you actually take care of that. So one of the other lessons that I teach is about you cannot serve the many until you serve the one. That's good. So I'm going to break that down to you. There's got several different layers. The first thing is you, the leader, has to be right. So you can't be serving a lot of other people if you, the leader, isn't right. So you have to take care of yourself. You know on an airplane when they tell you when those masks come down why you put yours on first? Because you're of no help to anybody if you're not breathing. (laughs) Right. So about an organization, you've got to be right. And the other, another layer of that then says, you can't just lead people by a group of them. It's a him and her. Right. So you find that you find the individualness of those people that you're working with and you're dealing with, and you and you try to make sure that your leadership is really geared to him and her, and then to them. So you don't start at them; you start at him and her. Hmm. And then the other thing is, you can't help the plight of many if you don't see the humanness of the one. I learned that lesson when I was in Africa. I had an opportunity on a field excursion to go to Kenya a couple of times. I met with these three men in a village who had been rescued from the drugs and the crime and all of the poor economic conditions, and they got an education. And instead of just going to the bigger city and actually taking advantage, they came back to their, their village. And they decided that, there was, that they were going to make a difference. And so they figured out that the root cause of all the crime and economic was prostitution. They then further defined it down to say there's a difference between the prostitute who thinks they have no choice and the prostitute who chooses to do it. So they said, let's work with the people who don't think they have a choice because their mind could be, you know, could be uh, affected, influenced in a way. Mm-hmm. And, they, and I said, well, what are you going to do? They said, well, we're going to teach them a trade. And I went, wow, that's really great. I said, why a trade? They said, well, because then they can create something of value other than themselves to sell. Right. And then they could take that to the marketplace and they could earn money from doing that trade. So it was very tightly connected to maybe the way they might normally think. Well, all of a sudden I'm getting my big U.S. hat on, you know, and I'm going like, wow, how many sewing machines do you have? How big is the room? How many flyers did you put together (laughs) to go to social media? You know, I'm like thinking all over. Now, Mm -hmm. all this is happening inside my crazy head. And I've been saying this out loud, but I'm doing that. And so I asked them, I said, how many uh, sewing machines do you have? And he says, one. And so well, head cocked, you know, and I go, one. He says, yes. He says, because I have to change one person at a time. I can't change the mm. whole group. I have to change one person at a time, which then reminded me I have to see the humanness of the one to be able to fix the plight of the many or to contribute to the plight of the many. So although he knew that there was a much bigger ring of prostitution, it would happen by one person telling another person. Those two people would tell four. Those four would tell eight mm-hmm. and tell 16. And 
you know, if you think about the way this works, it, 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 it becomes a groundswell. And that is where this wonderful activity happens. Um, you know, and, and so when you, and so I think about this within an organization, how leaders can really impact one person at a time. It's why mentoring, it's one person at a time, mentor someone so they can go mentor someone else and, and then mentor and mentor, it, it, it works out. And, and then, you know, things like, um, you know, having individuals within the nonprofit uh, sector, understand that when volunteers come in, can they really see what's happening? Do they see the humanness of what they're doing? Like they may have a heart to help hunger or to help uh, transportation or housing, but do they really see it? And there's a, there's a local, uh, for me in Charleston, there's a local nonprofit called Low Country Orphan Relief. And they don't take care of children, but what they do is they provide all the resources that the child needs when it's taken from children's services and taken it away from the home. And so they're put into the foster care. They can only take whatever they're holding on to. So if they're in a diaper and they have a blanket, they get to take it. If they have, a, if they have nothing in their hands, they have to take them. So they have nothing. Hmm. And so we have contributed as a family and we raised, we do diaper drives and we've, you know, collected all kinds of things. But the day I went in and did the picking, and the picking is the term we use when there's a sheet given from the child services that says, here's what this child needs. Mm -hmm. I bawled my eyes out mm -hmm. when I was picking things from the shelf because it was the only thing those children would have. So for me to understand what all of those children went through, I had to first get it for what it was like for that one child. This was their only toy. This was their only pair of pajamas, their only, mm -hmm. um, you know, shirt, jeans, whatever. Oh my gosh, was it altering, life altering. That's why that message is so important to me. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's one of the three ingredients of cohesion, right, is that value. You, you see yeah. what I'm doing has real value to one person, and it's so powerful that it it, it strikes the emotions, strikes the, the whole person, and now they go into everything that they're doing with the organization with that same amount of fervor and that same amount of passion. And it, it just, it spills over where it can be so easy when you're looking at a large group to just sort of feel like everything's just a number, you know, numbers don't make us feel seven doesn't make you feel anything, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, the story exactly of one. Right. And you take your values. So in an organization, you have your value system. So people have value systems as well. So you hopefully align them, right, in organization. Mm -hmm. But your beliefs are a direct result of your values. Your attitudes is how you feel about your beliefs in relationship to your values. When you add all three of them, you get your behaviors. So if you want to address the behaviors of individuals and you want to engage their belief system, start with the values. Make sure that people are completely aligned with their core values. And that's how I wrap up when I talk with organizations on what they do with the cohesion culture is to make sure that their their core values are not just words that they use to woo people in. They're not words that are plastered on the wall that don't mean anything. They have to live and breathe. And so therefore they have to live and breathe within the way that they communicate inside the organization, mm -hmm. the coaching that happens, the conversations that they have. It has to be built around activities that mean something uh, to people. So. It's, it reminds me of Simon Sinek's start with why principle, right? It's you have yeah. to start with the value because it's the root of everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Simon is really good for me. He actually has this uh, quote that I use in the belonging. And he says that the need for us to belong is it's, un, it's, it's, it's like it's weird, you know, how it happens, but it's available in all cultures. And he's exactly right because mm -hmm. cohesion 
is the same in every single culture. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. There is not one culture that does not want people to belong, does not want to establish some sort of value, and doesn't have some form of mutual commitment. Mm-hmm. Wow, I am taking a ton of notes for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm in writing up a flurry here. <laughs> this is so. Hopefully, our listeners are doing the same thing. Hopefully, you busted out a pen or pencil at some point during this. They're like, "Oh my gosh, this is coming at me so like a valuable. fire hose." So good. Well, the good news is they get to listen to it more than once. That's true. Yeah, you can always just rewind it. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you're working with um, for profits versus non for profits, because I know you work a little bit with both, uh, what are some of the biggest differences that you see when working with the leadership or really bringing the volunteers in, because that's a different angle when there isn't that financial incentive involved. Right. So um, again, the, probably the, the, the really biggest difference is going to be based on the individual leader and how that leader really treats the organization and treats the people of the organization. Okay. You know, many organizations claim that their employees are their greatest asset, but yet they treat them like a piece of machinery. Right. And so the opportunity is, is just to make sure that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're working, that you treat people like people, not like machines in a cog, you know, so if or cogs in a machine. So I think that's probably what I see uh, more than anything is the disparity sometimes in the differences in the way, you know, people treat. I think in non in nonprofits, um, individuals are much more in tune to the personal plight and the personal relationship. Sometimes in larger companies and organizations, they are sometimes so far removed that they don't actually, um, they don't really get it. So one of the things I recommend, and I stole this from uh, Chick-fil-A, and that is, it's called a day in the life. And it's an opportunity for leadership to actually experience what it's like in the very basic, rudimentary, Uh, programs within the organization. Uh, Chick-fil-A requires all of their uh, team members to actually go work in their in the field at least one day uh, a year. And so you can do a day. So you can do a day in the life. So I work with organizations to try to make sure that they create a day in the life um, opportunity so that they are seeing what's it like. And, And not just, you know, not just the handout, but can you really see, you know, the way people live and and what they're doing. So it's, it's really eye-opening in so many different ways. I have seen um, in third world countries, though, I've seen people treat each other better than I have in some of the best places in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's so disappointing. In some of the best uh, areas in, you know, in Europe and uh, you know, Asia, around the world, I, just in, in these places where people are doing well, uh, they don't seem to have that same value of treating people, but it's interesting how when individuals have less, they actually value people more. And it's not true everywhere, so I'm not overgeneralizing. And then <laughs> any of your listeners who go, that's not me, you know, I don't want them writing nasty letter grams. I want, them, <laughs> I want them to understand that in the spirit in which it was said and the spirit of, of which it is said, I'm from a very, very poor family. I mean, we barely had two nickels to rub together. The fact that I'm sitting here with a PhD is a testament to my mom and my dad. And the fact that they encouraged me all along the way to do everything that I could possibly do. I was not defined by my circumstance. My mom taught me, she says, your character is defined by choices, not circumstance. We were poor by circumstance, not by choice. And who you make yourself to be that makes all the difference in the world. As a matter of fact, she told me that if I wanted to be a janitor, she said, be the best janitor you can. And if you're gonna sweep the floors, young man, she says, you better get into the corners and make them clean because anybody can sweep in the middle. Hmm. Wow. 
that's awesome (laughs) that's great yeah well man we could we could talk for ever Hours. about this stuff because this is so so interesting but we do you we, have we to are have getting part two up. dr troy part two i guess so like it's gonna have to happen at some point that man i i really wanted to ask a question about well ask it okay okay we good can... <laughs> uh, i want to ask a question about like obviously this last year lots of organizations companies have had to figure out how to work digitally with each other and so yes. what have been some of the things that you found work really well to build cohesion even though they're not physically together Okay, great. So I do a session where I talk about, um, you know, the cohesion workplace, and then I give them some samples of some things to do. And because we only have a short bit of time left, uh, one of the things that I will will, would recommend to do is this one um, is make sure you're including all of the senses in as much of your experience as possible. Think about whatever you have done when people were together in person and say, well, now we can do this online, we just have to invent it differently and remove disparaging uh, opportunities or inequities. So for instance, if you have three or four people who are working in the office and two or three people who are working uh, at home remotely and you do a meeting, don't let the three or four people group together in the one conference room with one screen, put them all back in their offices and have everybody be on the screen. It equalizes the whole playing field. Hmm. And so one of the things that I recommend that all organizations do, and I know listening to two of you and the chocolate cake, this is fun. So one of my clients did a, a experience where they sent a package home to the to the group. They all had to open it at the same time. What they did is they opened it, they celebrated, they didn't do anything other than just talk about the package that they delivered, no work, no nothing. It was popcorn. They opened the popcorn and everybody ate the popcorn. So what did you have? All of your expenses, I, 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 all of your senses were engaged, my sight my sound when I was crunching it, when I was touching it, when I was smelling it, when I was tasting it, all of my senses were engaged in this process. It created a memory. That's really what we need to do virtually is we just need to remember that we're people and we want to create memories. And one of the other senses that we don't take advantage of, so there's a sixth sense, and I'm not talking about the old Bruce Willis movie where you see the people. Okay, these are all real live people that we're seeing here. And it's called the, the it's called our spatial recognition. So it's the space. It's how we connect ourselves in a three-dimensional world. Like you and I are, it's one-dimensional what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. But if we connect ourselves to something that we're both looking at visually, it can help our brains make sense of it because our brains relate to people like i have a great relationship with my computer it's seeing it in 3d right <laughs> so it's like oh wow isn't this great new my phone i see my phone in 3d so seeing other people in 3d i almost want to jump at them because i haven't seen them forever so i have to hold back on them. <laughs> jump at your computer hold back on people but inject fun have fun with what you do don't leave that part out because too many organizations only do zoom meetings to update people on what's going on in projects they start on the hour end on the hour and you need to start a little bit before so that you can have that welcoming and that greeting like you normally do when you come into a meeting early i mean not everybody runs into the meeting sits down and it starts so yeah. so we if you're, you're missing out on that so you need to a- actually put that in place do you call people up on the phone and just ask them how they are do you do a zoom meeting where you don't want to do anything but ask them how are their kids how's their dog how's their parents how's something happening in life that's mm. what we need to do yeah that's awesome well we got one final question for you i'm really excited to hear your answer on this because we talked to lots of different people about this but you have a, such a different perspective what does the idea of building a legacy mean to you well Today, I can answer that's 
maybe differently than I would a year ago. So today I have an opportunity. I've launched a new book called Fanny Rules, A Mother's Leadership Lessons That Never Grow Old. And this is the life lessons that my mother passed along to me as a young boy and as a young adult. Uh, my mom survived a bout of cancer when I was 12 years old. She actually, and that was 50 some years ago. And cancer was, at that time, it was, you know, you were written off with cancer. She survived it. And why? Because of what I told you before. She defined her life. She said, it, cancer is not going to define me. It is going to be my choice. I'm living life. And so what we did was live life. 43 more years that woman lived, but she could not outrun Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Alzheimer's took my mom from me. Actually, my mom almost left me three times on the third time she did. Almost left me with cancer. She left me with Alzheimer's. I lost seeing her. So I wrote this book because Alzheimer's stole her memories. I want to give back some of those memories into this space encourage people who may be dealing with Alzheimer's that they can do something. So my proceeds of the book go to benefit the Alzheimer's Association. And my wife and I have also offered a $25,000 matching donation to the Alzheimer's Association when people buy the book Fanny Rules. You buy more than five books of Fanny Rules and give them out to people you know, you actually will engage the uh, matching donation. And uh, we're really excited so far. Uh, as of, uh, you, you, we've probably given away about uh, one third or a little bit more of that, uh, of the matching donation to the Alzheimer's Association. So we're hoping that, uh, you know, your podcast and others who will, you know, think about this will go, this is something worthwhile. You know, Dr. Troy is not benefiting from this. The star of the show is Fanny. That's mm -hmm. my mom. My mom's nickname was Fanny. If you want to know how, it's in the first part of the book. It tells the story <laughs> of how Fanny got her name. That's oh. awesome. I, I love that. What a beautiful way to build a legacy is to remember that it's not just me building a legacy. It's a legacy that's been passed down to me. We're mm -hmm. building a legacy, not creating one from nothing. That's right. right. And uh, what a beautiful way to do that. Well, uh, Dr. Troy, please tell our listeners, how where can they find you? Where can they uh, go to order the book? And we'll make sure that we have all of those links down in the show notes. Well, thank you. Well, I'm an open book. You can find me in all social media platforms at Dr. Troy Hall, Dr. Troy Hall. And the website is also very easy for you to get to. It's called drtroyhall.com. And uh, there's a section in our own books, which will talk about the books, the Cohesion Culture book, which was a best-selling, and hopefully Fanny Rules, which launches officially uh, in May of 2021. We hope that one will also follow suit as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. I just love this. And I, I got the privilege of seeing Ted and Lisa. I don't know the listeners that they even get a chance to see you, but I have been mesmerized by the two of you over this last 30 minutes and watching your facial expressions and seeing the two of you relate to each other. Oh my gosh, it is so awesome to be able to witness that, to see the two of you and the connection that you have and how you, you play off of each other and people who don't get that visual, they don't get to see it. And I could not leave today without... Uh, putting that out there. Oh, well, we get, do we get good marks then on cohesion? Hopefully we do. <laughs> I hope you do. So it's a matter of, well, I don't know, you want some chocolate cake. So just make sure that it's all about belonging, value, and shared mutual commitment. <laughs> and then have your chocolate cake and cohesion too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Troy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Legacy Builders Movement. If you appreciate this podcast and find that it's valuable, the best way that you could help us is to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. To learn more about Legacy Builders, go to LegacyBuildersInternational.com. That's LegacyBuildersIntl.com. 